This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some important and topical issues related to vaccination and comorbidities. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Drs. Abigail Davis and Matt Castleton, both section editors and both GPs, and who both work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Matt and vaccinations in the first instance. Matt, have there been any significant changes to COVID vaccination guidance in the UK in recent weeks? Yes, so the situation is constantly changing. There have been several recent changes in UK guidance. Notably, there's been the the well-publicised decision to delay the administration of the second dose of vaccine in the UK. So the second dose can be given up to 12 weeks from the first, and that applies to both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccines. The basis for this decision is discussed in a report published on the 6th of January, and this uses calculated short-term efficacies for both vaccines derived from trial data, and they calculated a 90% efficacy for the Pfizer vaccine and 70% for the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I might just read out the conclusion of, of that document in full. And they say that given the epidemiology of COVID-19 in the UK in late 2020, there is a need for rapid high levels of vaccine uptake among vulnerable persons. The committee supports a two-dose vaccine schedule for the Pfizer-BioNTech and AstraZeneca vaccines. Given the data available and evidence from the use of many other vaccines, JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccinations, advises a maximum interval between the first and second doses of 12 weeks for both vaccines. It can be assumed that the protection from the first dose will wane in the medium term and the second dose will be required to provide more durable protection. The committee advises initially prioritising delivery of the first vaccine dose as this is highly likely to have a greater public health impact in the short term and reduce the number of preventable deaths from COVID-19. Great, thank you, That's, that's very clear. Tell us about vaccination and pregnancy. Yes, there's been a a shift again in the the, the JCVI's advice on COVID-19 vaccination in pregnancy. So initially, the advice was against vaccination for women who are pregnant due to a lack of safety data. Now that's been softened, they suggest it is considered where risk of exposure to SARS-CoV-2 infection is high and cannot be avoided, or where the woman has underlying conditions that put them at very high risk of serious complications of COVID-19. So that can then be discussed with the individual woman and, and, and considered in those circumstances. And that change has come across in the Green Book, Chapter 14a, which we discussed in the last podcast. Okay, great, thank you. And what about the newest vaccines? Again, in the UK, uh, as has been widely publicised, uh, there's a third vaccine that's MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products uh, Regulatory Agency, uh, have approved, uh, and that was on the 8th of January. And that's the Moderna 
mRNA vaccine. Again, people already know it's been widely reported that it's not likely to be part of the UK programme until the spring, but the approval is in place uh, and ready for when that vaccine becomes available in the UK. Okay, thank you. And what are the contraindications to the vaccine? Who, who should not get the vaccine? The absolute contraindications are really quite small. It's it's just um, hypersensitivity to an active substance or any excipients in the vaccine, or an immediate allergic reaction to the first dose, in which case the patient shouldn't get a second dose. There's a longer list of, of cautions, but the contraindications are really just those those two points. Okay, thank you. And I think we, we cover uh, further cautions within uh, the relevant section of BMJ best practice. Um, and, and next question, I wonder how well are the vaccines being tolerated up to now? In terms of adverse events for the three approved vaccine, again, you mentioned the best practice coronavirus topic. We list in there common adverse events that apply across the different vaccines. So headache, uh, arthralgia, myalgia, local injection site reactions, fatigue, that applies to, to, to all of the three approved vaccines in the UK. And then less common reactions, lymphadenopathy, malaise, feature there as well. Yeah, from my experience, having had the vaccine yesterday, you're very much in line with that. So just a slight achy arm and, and nothing else, really. That was the Pfizer vaccine. Excellent. Great. Well, I'm delighted to hear that you've, uh, you've, you've got it. That's, that's good news. Um, let's move on to from vaccines to long COVID. Has there been any new guidance on long COVID? Yes. Um, NICE published a rapid guideline on managing the long-term effects of COVID-19. Uh, that was on the 18th of December. One of the first things they do in that guidance document uh, that NICE does is to sort of clarify the terminology. So there's various terms that have been used um, for the prolonged symptoms that some people get after acute COVID-19 vaccinations. So long COVID being, being a popular one. So they define acute COVID-19 as being the signs and symptoms of COVID-19 up to four weeks. Then they use the phrase ongoing symptomatic COVID-19 for signs and symptoms of COVID-19 that persist from four up to 12 weeks. And then the term post-COVID-19 syndrome, they apply to signs and symptoms that develop during or after an infection consistent with COVID-19. So these are the sort of the later effects that continue for more than 12 weeks uh, and are not explained by alternative diagnoses. And then the document follows on with sections on assessing, investigating and managing the, you know, the latter two groups. So the ongoing symptomatic infections or the, the post-COVID-19 syndrome type pictures. Okay, great. And can you pick out some of the key features of this advice? Firstly, they, they make the point that people with acute symptoms maybe should be forewarned of, of this possibility. They should be advised of the risk of, of possible future complications. And then in terms of assessing people with possible ongoing or post-acute COVID-19, they suggest that, that their physical, cognitive, psychological and psychiatric symptoms are all assessed, as well as functional abilities. In terms of investigations for, for people with the more sort of post-acute or, or ongoing symptoms, again, 
they suggest a full blood count, kidney and liver function tests, uh, CRP, ferritin, B-type, natriuretic peptide, BNP, and thyroid function, and a chest X-ray by 12 weeks after acute COVID-19 if the person has not already had one and they have continuing respiratory symptoms. So, so all that is quite useful perhaps for a GP dealing with someone in that situation. Um, and then they sort of discuss other possible investigations. You can consider offering an exercise tolerance test, according to the level of breathlessness, heart rate, oxygen saturations, obviously. So finally, again, there's been information out there about uh, specialist clinics, and they do say that after ruling out acute or life-threatening complications and alternative diagnoses, um, then a clinician, a uh, a GP or other clinician could consider referring people to an integrated multidisciplinary post-COVID assessment service any time from four weeks after the start of acute COVID-19. And I know we've discussed before, there's the NHS has produced guidance on, on, on these clinics and there's a, an online um, platform um, which people can access as well. Okay, great. Thanks, Matt. That's 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 really really helpful. Um, let's move on to Abby now and coexisting conditions. Um, Abby, I wonder what's new in the management of co- of the coexisting conditions topic on BMJ best practice. Well, we're updating the topic every week, um, and recently we've added new guidelines on endocrine conditions and also on bronchiolitis. Okay, great. Thank you. And can you tell us about some of the new guidance on the endocrine conditions, first of all? So we've added the European Society of Endocrinology guidance on managing thyroid dysfunction during the pandemic. And they give some recommendations for the diagnosis and management of hyper and hypothyroidism. So one of the things they say is that the diagnosis of hyperthyroidism should be made in the usual way, um, so based on clinical suspicion, supported by biochemistry and, if possible, TSH receptor antibody testing. Block and replace regimens are preferred for patients who are newly diagnosed with hyperthyroidism, and the reason for that is to reduce the number of blood tests needed, and the guidance details recommended regimens for different situations. Um, They make an important point about symptoms of neutropenia that can be induced by antithyroid drugs, and those might include sore throat, fever, and flu-like illness, and it can be really hard to distinguish those from symptoms of COVID-19. So if a patient taking antithyroid drugs develops any of those symptoms, the drug should be discontinued and the patient needs to have an urgent full blood count to check for any neutropenia. Great, thank you. What about patients with hypothyroidism? Well, the guidelines say there are no particular changes relating to the diagnosis and treatment of hypothyroidism. Patients should be advised to carry on the same form and dosage of thyroid hormone replacement, um, even though regular blood test monitoring might be difficult. Patients will need thyroid function testing if they feel significantly unwell or they have significant weight changes in order to adjust medication if needed. Okay, thank you. And what about patients who are pregnant? Are there any implications for them? So the recommendation is to follow the usual practice for increasing thyroxine dose in pregnancy, even if it's difficult to monitor thyroid function with blood tests. 
And when thyroid tests are done, it's important to use the trimester-specific reference ranges. Okay, thank you. And last one on thyroid disease. Does it increase the risk of COVID-19? Uh, no, as far as we know, autoimmune thyroid diseases aren't linked to an increased risk of COVID-19. However, uncontrolled thyrotoxicosis might result in more severe complications from SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, including thyroid storm. And that's why there's that recommendations to still start treatment in newly diagnosed patients. Okay, thank you. And and the other thing you mentioned, I think, was bronchiolitis. Um, tell us about bronchiolitis and 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 COVID. Mm-hmm. The Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health in the UK has published some guidance for treating children with bronchiolitis and other lower respiratory tract infections during the pandemic. And they emphasise that we need to optimise preventative treatment, including flu vaccination and palivizumab for eligible children. For clinical assessment, actually, the key features are the same, um, irrespective of the child's potential COVID-19 status. So clinicians need to assess oxygenation, hydration and nutrition. And they also say that high flow nasal cannula oxygen is an aerosol generating procedure. So if its use is being considered, then a senior clinician should be consulted. Okay, thank you. And and, and do all uh, affected children need to be tested for, uh, for COVID? Um, well, the guidelines say that only children requiring admission to hospital um, need to be tested for COVID in hospital. So if a child is assessed in the emergency department and then goes home, they don't need to be tested in the hospital. Children who need to be admitted um, should be tested for COVID, but also for other respiratory viruses such as influenza and respiratory syncytial virus. And those children who need intensive or high dependency care or surgery should be prioritised for rapid COVID testing. Um, For infection control purposes, all children should be admitted to a cubicle until their virology results are available and their household members need to be screened for any symptoms of COVID-19. And if those are present, a second COVID test for the child might be needed. Okay, thank you very much, Abby. And thanks also to Matt and, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.